podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 Network. I'm Jared Kimber. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes, you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. On this episode of Red Inca, we talk about a cricket team more crazy than the Pakistan men. It's the Pakistan women. And for that, we got the author of a new book on their history. I'm Ayush. I work for Greek Buzz as a sub-editor slash journalist. We talked Shahid Afridi, Benazir Bhutto, the Khan sisters, how their team once left the country illegally for a World Cup, Sana Mir, Asian Games victories, Mark Cole's ice cream, and the future of Pakistan women's cricket. You have written a book. I'm going to allow you to say the name and the title and where everyone can buy it from. The book is Unveiling Jazba. It's on the history of Pakistan women's cricket. They completed 25 years in 2022. It is available everywhere in UK, US, Australia, New Zealand, India, on Amazon. And of course, in book depository, Waterstones, W. Smith, Bellet. Yeah. Flipkart. Is it on Flipkart? No, no, no not on Flipkart. Ah, Flipkart. Uh, let's start with the story. So Shahid Afridi, a few years ago, said that women's hands should be used for cooking and not cricket. He then got a lot of flack from that, backtracked and said that he was misquoted or taken out of context, as we all are, but that he still wouldn't let his daughters play cricket. That is the world that Pakistani women's cricket lives in, isn't it? That's an accurate reflection of, of the society that those players have to survive in. Yes, in a way. Firstly, Shahid Afridi was not misquoted. I saw the full video. He was not misquoted because he said similar things later on. And, you know, it it kind of shows up in a way when so many of the Pakistani cricketers, the women cricketers, actually adore Shahid Afridi. And everyone adores Shahid Afridi. Yeah, so it's like, you know, whatever he says and all of that, they don't care about it. They probably don't believe it. Of course they don't. But they do adore him. So yes, it is a reflection in a way because Shahid Afridi, he'll come and back the women's team. It's not like he won't back the team, but it's like not my daughter. And that mm. is the case everywhere. Great, somebody else is bringing laurels to the country. That's fantastic. But it can't be my daughter. And unfortunately, it's a very, very complex issue. And as Sanami, the longtime captain of Pakistan team, says that the West does not understand the complexity of this yes and no, because there is a huge battle that they're facing the parents, because the moment the parents step up and support their children, they are taking on a system which is not made up by one person. It just exists. So uh, there are a lot of battles that not just the players who are fighting, it's also their families who are fighting. And it is very complex from the outside. It's, it, it can seem very easy for us to you know, just say that okay, they are not allowed to play. But I mean, unfortunately, somebody like Shahid Afridi can probably lend that support. He's strong enough, powerful enough, big enough. But for parents of these cricketers who come from middle-class families, from rural areas, lower middle-class families, it is not as easy. Many of them have gotten beaten up. Some of them have had relationships cut off with their extended families. They had, some of them had to play in secrecy. And there's just 86 women eventually who have played in 25 years, managed to reach up to the point. And uh, 
trust me, they are the ones who have actually got support. And these are the stories of women who have got support. Uh, it's beyond my imagination to think what about those cricketers who never even made it? What could their stories be like? Yeah, we'll move on to the main story eventually. But I mean, there were tales that a woman was sexually assaulted in Pakistan cricket not that long ago, really, and took her own life. We know there's a lot of dark stories out there, don't we? Yes. Unfortunately, as the court would rule it, she wasn't assaulted as far as the reports are concerned. The report yep. by the committee, she sort of used it to, I don't know, to uh, blackmail the organizers. and. Uh, I will the... say this though, that is used a lot with victims yes. as well. So it's a murky thing. But the point is that that is something that we don't really see in general cricket, women or men's around the world. Like there are specific differences and problems that the Pakistan women have that don't really translate over to others. Is that fair to say? Not really, because in India itself, there have been cases mm. of a woman alleging that there is their sexual harassment. Oh, no, I meant, I sorry, I meant the whole structure. So from the sexual harassment to Shahida Fridi coming out and saying things to the cultural norms, to the legal norms, even within women's cricket in subcontinental Asia, which has many challenges right across the game. feels like Pakistan has maybe higher hurdles than some of the others. And it's slightly trickier in some ways. I think so. I mean, I don't know enough about Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. But when I actually got going with this story, the first time I went to interview these players, I thought their stories would be similar to that of the Indian players. We hear a lot of these players coming from rural backgrounds, having to fight their way up, not rich enough and all of that. But in Pakistan's case, it was almost like almost everyone had to face these battles of acceptance, which isn't the case even with India. India, you'd hear stories, you'd talk to the national players, it would be like, yes, my father wanted me to play, that's why I ended up playing. With Pakistan, barely any fathers wanted their children to play and they came up that they had to fight the system and get accepted first within the family. It's not even about the father, sometimes it's the brother that they're hiding from because brother wouldn't allow them to play. Mm. So yes, Pakistan is different from India in a lot of ways and that is what sort of surprised me and got me hooked onto this story. All right, well, let's go back to Benazir Bhutto because weirdly enough, in some ways, she sort of started the Pakistani women's momentum, I suppose, towards becoming a team because she was looked up at by two, I suppose you would say, women of privilege or girls of privilege, probably around that age. And they sort of saw that if there was a, a woman who could run Pakistan, then perhaps there was a chance that women could also play cricket for Pakistan, which is a fair and reasonable thought process, but probably didn't go over particularly well at the time. Yes, Benazid Bhutto sort of became the face because there were a lot of women within Pakistan who were fighting in it. And Benazid Bhutto, at the end of the day, there was an aspect of revenge because Benazid's father, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, he was sort of thrown out of power by Ziaullah. So she had definitely some political motivations and she kept the fight on. But there were a lot of women within Pakistan who were fighting this. In the space of art, in theatre, Ajoka theatre, there was, there were in, space of dance, there was uh, in the space of music. All of this, women were banned from doing all of this and there was fight happening all together. But yes, the moment Benazir Bhutto had the camera and all of that of the Western media, of BBC on her, mm. that sort of becomes the popular face. And in a way, she also sort of inspired when Zia Ulaq was eventually thrown out of power, she came and became the prime minister of the country. She was extremely popular at that point. 
So yes, that gives hopes to a lot of other women and Shaiza and Charmeen who were in England at that point were inspired by the fact that, okay, now it's a free country. Pakistan, it's a democratic country, so to say. And if the country can accept a woman leader, why not women cricketers? So they're in the UK. Tell me a little about those two sisters and their background. So they come from a fairly affluent family in Karachi. Their father, he had a carpet business, which Shaiza is running now. And in the 1980s, when Zia Ulhaq was in Pakistan, of course, women were not allowed to play outside. So they would play within the compounds of the fairly large palatial house, in a way. But uh, during the summer vacations, they would go to the UK. They would play there for a club, a Winchmore Cricket Club. And that sort of inspired, I mean, I don't know, they just fell in love with the game. Because one day, Shaiza won them a game. And with Charmeen at the other end. So they were inspired to believe that they can make it big here. They could dream at that point. So yes, they kept going there. And eventually they went to study there in UK and they started living there in the 80s, mid 80s. So yes, Shaiza did her schooling from Middlesex. She went on to play county for Middlesex. She studied at Leeds University. She was doing a PhD in textile studies. So... It, they did sort of a comfortable life in UK because they had the money, they could play cricket, they could do everything. But one thing they couldn't do as uh, citizens of Pakistan was represent England in cricket. So that dream was there. The only way they can play international cricket as they wanted to, they had to come back to Pakistan. And as their father saw it, maybe that wasn't the best idea for them because as soon as they came, they were met with their chips. And at that stage, they come back to the UK, don't they? They end up leaving Pakistan at the first attempt where they try and make a cricket team, don't they? Yes, because their father thought they wanted to play cricket. That's it. The dream within them was to play cricket for Pakistan or rather play cricket internationally, not for Pakistan specifically, but internationally, which is something that both of them didn't understand or rather they didn't communicate that well, those yeah. thoughts. So yes, they had to go back because they tried to play cricket here. They were met with death threats from uh, Jamaat-e-Islam, religious right-wing outfit, because even though Zia Ulag had passed away, the most regressive regime Pakistan has had, there were after effects. These small religious outfits who would never get voted to power sort of had authority on the ground to disturb things. So the first time they tried organizing a match, they received death threats and they were like, no, you can't play against a men's team. That men's team even had Zahir Abbas back then. So they were given another option. They, I mean, Shaiza was extreme. I don't know if Jugaad is a word used in UK, in the Western world. I don't know what it means. Okay, it's, it's a management term, I think, used in uh, UK. But in India and Pakistan, it means to make do with limited resources. Oh, okay. To make something happen out of limited resources, which Shaiza was very good at. And she could bargain. She was very assertive. So she bargained into... A sort of a situation wherein you can play a game, but against a women's team. So they spoke to the police commissioner. Police commissioner didn't want any more fights. So they provided apparently 8,000 policemen to guard them and allow two women's team made up of people who can just basically throw the ball or bat or whatever. It was not a proper cricket game, but a cricket match happened where 24 women were there who stayed with Shaiza the day before the match, went to the ground on the day of the game. And yes, they played a game with the support. And But then that was the condition that after this, she has to go back to the UK. 
they do create a team. So how do they go from that to creating a team? Because that seems, if you need 8,000 people to set up a game, I just feel that's not sustainable. <laughs> yeah. So she comes back in 1993. There's a World Cup in England. She gets in touch with the people who are running the women's game there. And they realize there are certain formalities that they have to fulfill. One of them is to go back and be a resident of Pakistan for one year. So she has to give up on her PhD studies. She goes back. But of course, parents don't want their daughters to play there. They're scared of their safety. They hmm. are not sure where this woman is taking them. So she comes back. She has to hold tournaments. Now she has to have a complete domestic structure. So all of it is just made up. Okay, They can't play. They really can't play. But something has to be shown to the organizers of the women's game, international game. So a bunch of girls are just pulled in. Remember, one strong resource has his money and money can make things happen. So small groups are organized, women are called in and they can be anything. They can be players who are playing hockey, javelin throw, all sorts of sports. Any athlete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically anyone who just willingly come to the ground and participate in a game of cricket in a small mini tournament just to show to uh, IWCC that we have organized a tournament, we have fulfilled our formalities, and that is how the first tournament is held. And then, of course, a selection trial, a full-fledged selection trial is held with the lure that if your daughter gets selected, she becomes a part of the Pakistan women's team. Now, remember, this is 1996, mm. just two years into their first ever World Cup win for the men's team. Cricket is big. 1996 also had the World Cup in Pakistan along with India and Sri Lanka. So at that point, it is speaking, there's songs that are running to promote cricket by popular bands. Cricket is huge in Pakistan at that point. So yes, there is a bit of a love for certain parents, even though there are apprehensions, to send their daughters just to play a game. So yes, 60-odd people turned up at the Karachi's National Stadium for trials and 15 left for New Zealand for the first ever tour. There's a note I have here, and I know I've read it in your book, but now I forgot more. The note says, secretly escaped from Pakistan exit control list. Yeah. Can you explain my note back to me and why I wrote that down? Yeah. So uh, now the thing was they went for this tour to New Zealand and Australia, and it was a huge deal because... There is a belief, no documented evidence, but there is a saying that that was the first ever women's team outside of the Olympics to travel abroad to play any sport. So in that sense, it got a lot of limelight in the press. And now comes a throwback of a cricket structure that existed in the late 1970s, early 1980s, till 1980 before Zia became all-powerful. A bunch of women in Lahore were already playing. And they belonged to an elite circle. I mean, the family members were politicians, businessmen, lawyers, extremely affluent in Pakistan. So they sort of rose and they were like, we are the deserving and organizers of Pakistan cricket. We hold that right to represent Pakistan and not a bunch of people who have just risen recently. So they get into a fight. And as it turns out, for some reason, which no one would say why, but they are put on an exit control list, which is basically given to hardcore criminals who can't leave the country. And this team, so now all three teams are preparing, the three groups now willing to vote and play the World Cup in India. 
and they actually all three of them even turn up in India. It's not even like they're just planning for it. They've all turned up <laughs> with the resources and all of that. So one team, Shaiza's team, is put on the exit control list, and Shaiza again because she has some clout in Karachi. She finds out about that. I don't know through whom, but she finds out about this. And the team was said to fly from Lahore to Delhi because that's the shortest flight. So she finds out that the notice has reached the Lahore airport. Now this is 1997, and we have extremely slow government processes, and it has not reached the Karachi airport. So overnight they make a dash to Karachi. The entire team, Shaiza, goes to Islamabad to pick up the passports, and from Karachi they head to uh, Delhi eventually. So yes, they secretly escaped because legally they were not allowed to. There's a couple of interesting things. I mean, that's a ridiculous story. Yeah. When you look at women's cricket history, and uh, you obviously you know know this story really well. It's incredible how many posh, wealthy, one percent women have been involved. And if they hadn't have been, I wonder where women's cricket would have been if ladies who leisure and early widows and all those sorts of things had happened. Because geez, there was a lot of things put up between women and playing cricket that is ridiculous. Now, everything you've talked about so far is under what we would call the old structure of women's cricket, which was the International Women's Cricket Council. And that then gets, I won't want to say merged, but vacuumed up by the ICC and women's cricket becomes part of the ICC. That means that the women's cricket team becomes part of the PCB. That doesn't seem like a brilliant fit at that stage. Not at all, especially because one PCB not, wasn't really interested in running the women's affairs, but because there was a directive from the Lahore High Court to find the real, I don't know, administrators of women's cricket, and the topic there were like three groups fighting for their title, and some of them had financial clout, some had political clout, some just were related to each other. So Sharia Khan, to his credit. He tried to bring all three parties in together. One party led by Tahira Hamid, I think they agreed to this. The other party they fought Shariar Khan and Shaiza Khan sort of got involved. But yes, she had certain conditions. She wanted certain control, which Shariar Khan and the Tahira Hamid group who joined in weren't willing to compromise on with Shaiza. So. It was a battle. I mean, they they had a lot of resources. All those three groups, they could have done a lot more. But at the end of the day, it it had become an ego battle. They all wanted to be the true representatives of Pakistan women's cricket. They all wanted that limelight on themselves. But having said that, yes, you needed rich people in there. Without Shaiza, that's why I keep saying even the Shaiza came in 1997. There were certain women much playing much before her. Without her, this wouldn't have been possible. Pakistan wouldn't have had a women's team if not for her. So that's the kind of crazy first half. I mean, it's obviously someone should get your book for far more detail and all that sort of stuff. The second half is really Asana Mia appearing. I think probably most casual fans have heard of her. You know, she becomes the totem of Pakistan women's cricket. I'm trying to think of probably since Imran Khan has any one cricketer had that much impact in Pakistan on on their generation of cricketers and cricket in general how it was seen outside she was that big wasn't she i only assume and i think i've only met her once is she also from a wealthy background is that her backstory 
yes, yes. She is a daughter of an army man. She could just step out and play and no, there's no one to stop her. She had all the support. She had all the resources. When she went out to play, she probably didn't have any struggles in that sense what the other players did. It's something that even she admits to. But yes, I would probably think she was even more stronger than Imran Khan because Imran Khan at the end of the day, within the team, there were people who may not like him. Sana Meer, I mean, what surprises me is that she's part of the same age group as most of the other cricketers. The Asma, Iqbal, they all came around the same time. Yet, it was Sana Meer who had that commanding presence. And you have to realize that all these players post the PCB takeover had to battle a lot to reach that point. So within that cricket ground, they found the safe space. And within that safe space, Sanamir is not just a leader on the field. She's a lot more of it. They're confiding in her. She's a friend. As one of the multiple coaches have said, she was a friend. She was a mother. She was a captain. She was a sister. She was everything to them. And which is weird because you're of the same age group. But Mm. maybe because she didn't have so many scars while coming through the system, she was confident. And one advantage that Sanamir had was her ability to communicate. She gives you comfort when she speaks. So that, in a sense, a lot of players went along well with her and they liked her. They could distrust her completely. But at the same time, Sana took on the system and had to battle uh, quite a few administrators. So, yes, she was all-powerful. She could lobby just by the mere strength of people power. Mm. Tell me about the Asian Games. The two victories? Yeah, so like, are they against full-strength teams? Where was Sri Lanka at that stage? I'm assuming Pakistan were not favoured to win the first one. (laughs) Uh, Not really. The first one didn't have India and uh, Sri Lanka. At that time, the two strongest Asian cricket teams. They had to fight Bangladesh and they had an easy ride. Now, both the Asian Games victories, even in the second Asian Games victory in 2014, it wasn't a tough challenge because Bangladesh beat Sri Lanka in the semi-finals. On both occasions, Pakistan had to beat Bangladesh and at that point, they were far superior as compared to Bangladesh. So, in that sense, those victories from a cricketing standpoint wasn't big, but it brought out the fact that Pakistan has a women's team to the front pages. Yeah. In those Asian games, there were other sports that were happening in Pakistan really didn't win a lot of medals apart from the women's team winning gold medals. So it was a big occasion in terms of a sporting achievement. But from purely from a cricketing standpoint, the oppositions weren't strong. But just the fact that they won gold medal, they were everywhere in the newspapers, in the news channels. And there was recognition to the fact that women play cricket, which till date, there is not enough knowledge of the fact for girls coming from tier two towns and beyond Lahore and Karachi that a women's team exists. Even today, including journalists, I am not even going there. They can't name an 11 of a Pakistan team. So there is a lack of knowledge in that sense. So the Asian Games victories help the team get that limelight. After that, Mark Coles becomes coach. We've done an episode with him on here, which if no one's ever listened to it, is worth listening to his life story, regardless of the Pakistan bit. It's incredible before you get to the Pakistan coaching bit. Feels like from the outside and from people I've talked to that what Mark Coles did is sort of, I suppose professionalizes the wrong way, 
but certainly got them on the road towards professionalism and thinking about cricket differently. Obviously, Sana helped as well because she was there. It was that sort of the two of them pushing together. But it felt like having a coach come over from New Zealand who had coached women before, who came in without the political knowledge or the uh, local tension and just a coach was probably what they all needed. Yes. Yes. High time. And because just before Mark Pools came in, things were falling off for Pakistan cricket. Sanami resigned and it almost came to a point where she had threatened retirement. And the only big figure to say that I'm retiring because the system is not functioning properly wouldn't have been a great thing for Pakistan cricket board. So one of the conditions she laid down was we need a foreign coach. And the reason she said that was just before that, for six months, they had five different coaches training the team. They would all come and nothing would work out. And there was a lot of friction within the team. There were letters written out in the open, the coach blaming the captain, the captain blaming the coach. And it was all dirty. They needed to start on a fresh note. And it couldn't have been firstly a person from within Pakistan because they realized historically that the coach who comes in has the support of the administration and the administration wants certain things to happen certain ways, which doesn't really help the team at all times. So when a new guy comes in, he comes in without the baggage of any sort of bias. He comes in and secondly, what Mark Poles could do, which none of the other Pakistani coaches, even in, at the best of their intentions could do, was understand that women's cricket needs a different approach. Till that point, the women's team were being coached in a way, they would coach club cricketers, the club boys, boys coming to play club cricket. And that really didn't help them grow because something as simple as going on the back foot wasn't working out for the women cricketers because they didn't have the strength, they didn't have the weight, they didn't have the power. So they were constantly told under Mark Poles and Andy Richards also joined in that you have to play on the front foot. A lot of unlearning happened at that point. So the approach changed completely in, at that point. And most importantly, in, in India and Pakistan, especially at lower level, coaching is with a scale in hand, a ruler in hand. It's tough. So a lot of shouting, screaming, and for a lot of these cricketers who are beating all sorts of challenges, coming to the national level, they want comfort. They want assurance. Scolding doesn't help, which I think Mark Holtz understood. And he was one of the few coaches. There was, of course, Mortishim Rashid and other coaches who uh, adopted that uh, similar approach. But in Mark Poole's era, a lot of things happened wherein, firstly, they were not criticized for making mistakes, which was new. A lot of cricketers would say that we could play, we could trial out a lot of things without the fear of being scolded, even in a simple practice session or during a real match scenario. So a lot of things changed, yes. Most notably, he bought them ice cream when they lost the game and they all <laughs> thought they were about to be told off, which is my favorite Mark Cole story. I want to talk about the talent very briefly just to finish up here. But there is obviously talent in Pakistan women's cricket because why would they not be? They're not born any different than women anywhere else. I always think of Almas Akram, the left arm swing bowler, and I will watch her and go, I don't think I've ever seen a person swing the ball as much as her, but she was bowling around the wicket left arm when she should have been bowling over the wicket because she'd never had proper coaching before. Of recent times, I suppose the big breakthrough has been Nada Deer in the Big Bash. I forgot what, did she play for the Scorchers? No. Sydney Thunder. Sydney Thunder. The one with the green jersey. Yeah. yeah, I should know that. I covered that tournament about three years. That's a huge moment for Pakistan cricket, isn't it? To get a younger player through in professional. I mean, obviously, Sanamir is well known and, and whatever, but... The fact that that's now happening is huge for Pakistan. 
it is huge but the problem is pakistan will never i mean unfortunately i wouldn't say never but they're not at a stage where they can get the most talented players in the country to be playing for the team it is invariably players who get acceptance from their families from their neighbors from their relatives to play so you are anyway playing out with a small sample size even the domestic structure they barely have like 45 odd cricketers playing domestic cricket as of now because they don't believe they have more cricketers to even run a domestic setup so they're far from finding the most talented cricketers but now you have fatima sana a good good pacer hopefully a fast bowling all rounder in the future and aisha naseem who can hit the ball big they haven't discovered such players earlier so more players are coming through from the system but right now it is still awaiting a social acceptance till that point you are not discovering the most talented cricketers but even i was speaking to lisa salika she was telling me that uh, yes they have a lot of talented cricketers which even in australia they won't find crafty players more mm. because that is the only sport that they play in pakistan unlike in australia where they're playing multiple sports so a lot more craft in these players but yes fitness standards diets a lot of things are missing and it's not their fault like i remember talking to one of the players a squash player she was like we can't talk about diets because so many people don't even get three meals a day mm. there were players in the 2018 world cup going to the 2018 t20 world cup in west indies and skipping meals because they wanted to save up money and send that money back home Yeah. So you're realizing that the kind of food nutrition that they're having and they're competing against teams like Australia who have high fitness standards, the best of nutrition, all sorts of support. It's not an even playing field when they actually step on the field. So yes, maybe there is a lot more talent to be discovered. But as of now, no. Right now, they're not the most talented cricketers. I wouldn't say that. I think talented is the wrong word. What you mean is polished and professional and ready. isn't it do you know what i mean that the actual talent is probably there but as you said they're probably not picking from their best group anyway but you're completely right i'm going to finish with this you talk about hadil obeyed and her death threats can you just take us through that one a little bit yeah i was just talking to hadil obeyed she runs a small organization called khelo cricket in karachi and now it's just spreading to different parts of pakistan and she was telling me just as a matter of fact that yeah she keeps getting death threats in the first year she got a lot of death threats because among a lot of other things that she organizes one is a late night cricket tournament during the month of ramzan for girls so that was a novel idea for her but when she put up that idea that was seen as unholy firstly to do that in the month of ramzan to allow girls to play out in the open was seen unholy by a bunch of these extremist religious groups she didn't pay heed to them early on but over the years the games have continued more and more parents have come in with their daughters and i mean i don't know how they can just overlook the fact that they're getting detected i don't know but they're coming in and now since more and more parents are accepting that their girls can come out and play in the open these religious outfits now don't have a card to play anymore because nobody's supporting them any longer so that is evolving that is changing What do you think the future is? They went to the World Cup. Bangladesh seems to be a better team than Pakistan right at the moment. What do you think the future is over the next five or ten years for Pakistani women's cricket? There is a lot of scope. They need some revision because a lot of training that has to happen is at the basic level. 
Now they have to go up. Like even now, I don't understand why Anisha Nasim is batting at number seven because she's the only one who can hit sixes on demand in that team. But it is improving. Again, the entire domestic structure has been restructured. So five years down the line, maybe we can see the results. As of now, there are criticisms and advantages. Maybe five years down the line, we figure out whether the system has worked in getting more girls from the grassroots structure to be coming and playing for the team. Obviously, it's been incredibly tough for so many of the women involved. And we started with death threats. We ended with death threats, right? So it's absolutely horrendous. But how good is it that you can get to a point with Pakistani women's cricket where you could sit there and moan about the batting order, which I think is a huge step up <laughs> from everything else. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. And everyone should go and read your book, which is called... Unveiling Just by the History of Pakistan Women's Cricket. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot, Jared. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. You can now download us wherever you find your apps just by putting in 99.94. There'll be other cricket podcasts not actually hosted by me, and there'll also be some radio commentary coming soon. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Makunja Benredi is in charge of our video side. Orijati Senpathy turns the files into video podcasts, and Shibanka Patacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Cricket. <laughs>